From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is a special show, one of our favorites for the whole year. This is our NFL preview show. We have five guests, five of our favorite NFL Cognoscenti in here with us this week, mirroring our preview show for college football last week. We are delighted to be finally to this point in the year. This is Cade Massey hosting with my longtime buddies and collaborators, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner. Shane Jensen's going to be in here fresh out of the desert. Might need a shower, but we've got good distance from him, so that's going to be okay. Shane will show up here at some point. This is Tuesday afternoon. We're recording. It'll go up on SiriusXM in the morning. It'll be replayed a few times there over the course of the week while the podcast up. Tuesday, the week the NFL kicks off on Thursday evening, notably the week after college football kicked off. We're going to hold off on college football. There is so much we could talk about, but we're going to hold off. We'll do a little bit of non-NFL talk in, the, in Q4, but we have a lot of content to get through in the first three quarters here. Adi, Eric, good afternoon to you guys. Thanks for being here. How are things going where you are? They're doing great, mostly. Yeah, I'm excited. I have, I'm going to two home openers this year in the NFL. I'm going to the Eagles home opener. I'm going to the Buccaneers home opener. So what could be so bad in life? Hey, that's solid. That is a solid go. I'm, actually, that's a fun little play. We can maybe, maybe we can get our first guest to, to chime in on that. Which team would you take if you had to bet? on who's got better prospects. Maybe, maybe more interesting, we'll say 2023. Which team are you going to take right now to have a better 2023? Who better to answer that kind of question than our longtime friend, Eric Eager? Eric, good afternoon to you, and welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Guys, it's so much fun. This is, uh, like I said when we were off air, this is my favorite uh, content experience uh, to get to chat football and sports in general with you guys. Well, that's that's high praise, man, coming from you. Eric is the vice president of research and development at Pro Football Focus. He um, that that organization, which is slowly taking over the entire sports world. Maybe we'll hear a little bit about that as well. Eric, you can catch him in any number of places. His his uh, handle on Twitter is at Eric underscore PFF, I believe. And he also co-hosts the PFF Forecast podcast with George with George Jahari, which is a fantastic listen for all things pro football and beyond. Eric, um, you said, as we went on the air, you said you were happy with the way college football went. And I'm guessing that means not that some team of yours won, but rather that a few teams of yours won. I'm guessing you had a good good weekend at the, at the betting line. Yeah, and I got I got, I got to say I got lucky, too. Um, I, you know, they, they started putting out player props for college football, which – I'm guessing uh, your former student and, and colleague Rufus Peabody, if that were the case maybe 10 years ago, uh, I don't know if the books probably would have started putting them up again, but uh, I had a couple of uh, passing yardage unders on the game last night and mercifully both teams uh, laid out the gas pedal in the like the last uh, 12 minutes of the game to get me under both uh, of those. So that was a lot better than it could have been. Um yeah, Coastal Carolina is sort of my favorite college team, and 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 uh, only because the numbers always like them, and and they pulled through and covered <laughs> against Army. 
Um, it, that was a fun one. Uh, but yeah, there was a lot of, you know, upsets are always, almost always good, right? The public loves betting favorites and overs. And we're generally speaking on a lot of underdogs and unders. And, uh, you know, that, that makes for a good weekend when they hit. So it was a lot of fun. And I, I I'm looking forward to, uh, the quarterbacks that are coming up because, you know, this season, 2022, we have zero rookie quarterbacks starting in week one in the NFL right. and last year's crop. Looks like it's going to go one and four at best in terms of like successes at, at the first round quarterback position. Well, it's one of the great quests in sports, finding the next young quarterback. And despite all we know and all the advances, still hitting one out of four or one out of five is, is remarkable. Eric, this I, I hit you on gambling to begin with because it sure does feel like your at least um, forward-facing presence in the sports analytics world is increasingly gambling-oriented. Clearly, it's something you personally enjoy, but it also feels like that's a, a stake that PFF is making. You guys are building out more of a B2C presence and selling products and information into folks who might want to do some betting. And do I have that right? Has that been a? Can you talk about that evolution? Because it feels like. I don't know the exact mix of personal interest and professional interest you have there, but let me just say, I'm not a big sports gambler, but it's a very sharp way to look at the sports world and a very sharp way to consume what's going on out there. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, you know, PFF was built, you know, actually PFF started as like a, a, a British person's hobby, more or less, and then <laughs> and then morphed into. Well, hold on, a, hold on, a British person. Let's let's got to honor him more than that. Can you? Yeah, name sorry, him? Neil Hornsby, who is actually uh, a couple months into retirement now. Uh, congratulations, Neil. Um, you know, it was really his hobby. He was watching football, and kind of you know, people would look at this linebacker make twenty tackles, and Neil would say, you know that person's actually not having that big of an impact on the game. Somebody's got to make those tackles and they're all happening five, six yards downfield. So he devised a system to grade people. And ultimately that the initial, and I, and I think a lot of us want to be embedded in teams and at heart, right? Like, you know, even when I was in academia, I wanted my favorite calls when I was a consultant for PFF were always with the teams. I always wanted to be embedded you know, help them make decisions. And that certainly has been a big part of my career. Um, but the, the, the reality of the situation is that there are 32 NFL teams. There are, you know, if you count FCS, you know, 250 or so college teams. And after a while, like once everybody has adopted your data systems, like you either have to charge them more or you just stagnate. And, um, you know, the B2C space, there's a lot of, you know, business to consumer space there's a lot of people who kind of want that experience for themselves. So I know, you know, Timo Risky, who's been on your show before he, you know, he uh, chiefly among a few other of us built the mock draft simulator. So, you know, consumers can go to our website and mock the NFL draft for months on end. And there's millions of users that use that, um, you know, sports betting is kind of, you know, it, it's one of those where, you get to sort of like trade your favorite NFL teams or fantasy football is the biggest one. And that's we're getting a lot of subscribers. Now, you know, you get to manage your own football team and, and, you know, it's, and, and PFF sort of starting its, its work in the B2B space, moving into the B2C space, sort of seeing that opportunity because people want to engage in the game and, and, you know, sports betting is a big reason for that. I mean, there was the, the documentary about sports betting and fantasy that said, you know, the average, fantasy football player watches three times as many games per year than the 
fan who doesn't play fantasy football. I would imagine sports betting only increases that multiplier. And, and you know, obviously more uh, interest in a game fuels the entire business enterprise. So that's kind of where we're seeing it. Um, it's a little tricky, right? Because sports betting is, you know, got has a bad rap. And if you don't understand it very well, you could lead people into losing money. And like, so there's a, there's a, there's a, an ethical situation that we wrestle with for sure. Um, but I think that people are going to do it. So the best thing that we could do is lower everybody's theoretical hold. So hold on, say more. Eric's going to jump in here, but you got to elaborate what you mean by lower everyone's theoretical hold. Well, like if you're listening to ESPN, so Joey Galloway, and I know this, this hurts a little bit for UK, but like he said that he thinks that the betting line between Alabama and Texas is going to get out to minus 30 by Saturday, (laughs) which is patently absurd. Right. And so if somebody's taking that, Eric, by the way, it feels, it feels that way to me too. I know it's not true. Thank God I'm taking faith in the line, but it certainly feels like it could be. Yeah. So like if somebody's taking that betting advice, which is on ESPN, which is, you know, the most watched sports network in the world. Right. And they go to the counter and they say, okay, I better get myself some Alabama minus 20 before it gets out to minus 30. Then you're actively, somebody betting into that is betting what I call the full hold. They're betting the minus 110 on a coin flip, thinking that they're not betting a coin flip. And, you know, there's a number of different ways to lower that, you know, that, that the, the 110 to 100, right? You can use, you know, an odd screen and, and literally find the book with the best number that can lower the, the house advantage, you know, from let's say 2.4% to 1.2% or something like that. Um, or it can make yours positive. You could have what's called a negative hold. If you find a market that, you know, let's say, but lets you bet plus 110 and then the rest of the market's painted at minus 110, you have an opportunity there. If you don't like the game eventually to buy off of it, there are a number of different avenues that even if you don't handicap, right. Even if you don't want to like have a model for how good the teams are you can bet more responsibly and even if you're even like let's let's face it like the book's business model is that people are going to lose i i think that it's incumbent upon people who produce content to help at least people lose less uh if Mm -hmm. not win some um and and i think that unfortunately you know there are a number of different factors in the space that are 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 making people basically lose the maximum amount, which is mm-hmm. unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so Eric. I was just going to ask you since you guys started out as a, as you mentioned a B two B company, and now you're kind of diversifying to B two C. And I think one of the things you would agree with is you guys are a data provider in a number of ways. Is the same kind of data you're providing in a B2B context, the same set of variables that are useful for those that want to build predictive models for gambling and sports outcomes? I could imagine those being very different. And has that changed, therefore, at all, pro football's focus on kind of the data it kind of thinks about generating? Uh, yeah, for sure. And, and I think that there are, there are other providers. I know you guys had Ted Knutson on a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, stats bomb, like Ted was uh, a, a part of Brentford and then, you know, the team side of soccer. And then he was part of smart odds, which and pinnacle, which is sort of on the, which is act, on the betting side. And, you know, having that point of view from the get go, when they started stats bomb, that's, that's a fairly good advantage when you know, you're building your data for betters because that it, it sort of throws out the fluff and keeps the, the good stuff, a great deal of what we have to do at PFF is take data that teams asked for, right? So play-by-play data that teams requested so that they could build their reports better or 
you know, game plan for teams and all that kind of stuff better. We've had to pare that down so that it's that it's better for the gambler. Um, we sell that stuff to the gambler. Now, it's at various levels. You can buy a PFF premium subscription if you just want the player grades, but you can buy the play-by-play data if you want to munge it together yourself. But it, uh, independent of all that, like, yeah, there are two different types of data sets. And, you know, I'd like to think that all of it can be useful. But frankly, there are things that football teams care about that don't move the number that much. Right. And, and, you know, and there's plenty of businesses like that, right? Like there, I mean, I think about it like at the, the university, there are plenty of activities I used to do that didn't move the bottom line of the university, but everybody felt was important. Um, And and there are certain things like that in in football as well. Um, You know, I I think about, you know, certain aspects like, you know, uh, the line of scrimmage play, like, you know, there are, there are data sets that we provide teams that I don't necessarily know if they ooze out any more value than our traditional data set. But I do know like our coverage data, the new stuff that we're collecting there is far more valuable than the older stuff. So, you know, it's really about like teasing out the value there. And, and it's also about respecting your customer, right? Because, you know, the, the, the football teams might be able to say, Hey, I want to know, I want to know every single play where this four I got double teamed by the tackle and the guard. And it's like, okay, well, that's important to them. We'll, we'll provide that for them as long as it is cost-effective for us. From a betting perspective, it doesn't matter that much. You know what I'm right. saying? So, like, it's, it's kind of interesting, the sort of continuum uh, upon which data, you know, sort of rests. Well, it's also a nice uh, diversification strategy for PFF because you've really got two very different uses for relatively similar data, though some of it has to be yep. – massage more than others. Eric, let's use all that acumen and energy and investment you guys put into getting those numbers sharp into better understanding the season that's in front of us. What what are some of the maybe underpriced and overpriced bets out there? Why don't we take it at the team level since that may be the easiest thing to consume. At the team level, are there are there teams out there which you think aren't properly priced or are or some any interesting lines relative to the odds? Yeah, I, I certainly think that, you know, when you look at the the Philadelphia Eagles are one for me where, you know, I think we have them basically on par with Dallas to win that division. Um, the Pinnacle Sportsbook has them the favorite, but there are plenty of sportsbooks out there that have Dallas the favorite to, to repeat. Uh, and NFC East. Eric, let me ask a question real quick. Does that, has that held up despite the injury to their left tackle? How much did that move expectations? Uh, it moved it a little bit, but like, and, and I actually wrote an article about this on PFF.com. It's like the point spreads don't move a lot unless a quarterback is, is a quarterback's mm-hmm. injured or multiple players are injured. Um, mm-hmm. when, when you look at uh, team futures here, I, I, I believe we're still in a spot where, uh, Dallas's favor. Let me let me quickly uh, look here. Um, yeah, well now they're now they're basically on par, which is exactly where our numbers are. Plus one fifty for both teams. Um, mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that has shifted. Now that is exactly what happened last season. The Dallas Cowboys opened about a pick'em to win the division. The Washington Football Team at the time basically broke even with them on opening day. Um, injuries COVID all that stuff happened to Washington and ultimately Dallas won 12 games and it was all a foregone conclusion but this year I think it's interesting because I think the biggest the we've talked about this a number of times on the show I think the Eagles have a plethora of questions that their forward-looking front office has in a weird way given them right so 
Uh, one example of, of, of how I see the Eagles as a forward-facing franchise is 2020, they drafted Jalen Rager one pick ahead of Justin Jefferson. Justin Jefferson went on to set the record. <laughs> you know Howie most- Roseman. You know Howie Roseman today apologized for that pick, right, Eric? Yeah, but but I I actually look. My thing is is and 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 this is sort of getting to my my point about like, you know, there's all it's all variants. It's all how you piece it together. You know, Roseman. You know, uh, Rick Spielman, who's now no longer the general manager of the Minnesota Vikings is was seen on video making fun of the Eagles for taking Ragger. They take Jefferson. Jefferson leads the ha, has the most receiving yards in the history of the NFL the first two years. And the Vikings go 15 and 18 and have not been over 500 since that draft pick. The Philadelphia Eagles <laughs> since that draft pick have had to jettison their franchise quarterback, have had to fire their head coach and have had to tear it all down and yet made the playoffs before the Vikings did. They mm-hmm. trade Jalen Rager to the Vikings this past week for a fifth and seventh round pick. Mm-hmm. The, the Eagles are ruthlessly trying to improve and they're willing to spit in, in, in their own faces, their past faces to do it. And I find that extremely encouraging for a industry where a lot of people are too proud to do something like that. That is uh, awesome. And extremely, extremely well put. I want to push you on one thing, though, because I don't think there are many people in the world that have thought as much about NFL quarterbacks as you have in recent years. And what is the cap on the team? What's the cap on Hertz and what's the cap on the team with Hertz? Well, and that, and that's gets to my second point, because I think that there's two outcomes for the Eagles this year. The, the outcome last year was we're really good on the line of scrimmage and we have a quarterback who's limited. Let's play to our, our, our offensive and defensive lines and let's win all the games we're supposed to win and and take our chances on all the games they're supposed to you know lose and you know all the eagles wins were against bad teams and all the eagles losses were against good teams and they come back over they draft jordan davis they pick up james bradbury they trade for aj brown they're a much better roster this year and i still think the question becomes do they completely lean into the stuff that jalen hurts is good at so power running games some quarterback run stuff limited passing game etc cetera, etc cetera. I think if they do that, their schedule is favorable enough and their team is good enough for them to win 11 or 12 games. However, it doesn't help the, the entropy, right? Like each individual play in a scheme like that gets you further, not further away from knowing what Jalen Hurts is, but not as close as you could be. And the second outcome for them, in my opinion, is to run a traditional offense with Jalen Hurts. Um, and I think that if they do that, there's going to be bumps in the road in the learning curve for Hurts which could cost them a game or two, but might ultimately be better for them long-term. And so I think for the Eagles, there are probably two outcomes. There's They've already made up their decision on Hertz, and they might try to information gather through practice or other things, but they're going to run the offense that suits Hertz and is sort of, from a perspective of the quarterback, penny rich, pound poor. I think they're going to do that and then just move on from Hertz, which would be unprecedented, right? Having a successful quarterback on a rookie deal and not extending him. I think they're going to do that and win a lot of games this year versus trying to stretch them out and maybe, you know, not maybe get better as a team, but not improve the record. And, you know, ultimately move either move on from him or buy into him long-term. Like I think they're going to do the former rather than the latter, which will be, will make for an interesting offseason next year when they might trade him to a desperate team. They might just let him play out his deal. They might, you know, there, there's a number of things that they, they would do that would put them in an awkward position. 
Well, listen, man, that's a super interesting analysis because basically up front, you said this is something they do really well. They, they think very critically and they're tough in these decisions about their veterans. And then you said, and I, I and therefore I expect them to do that with Hertz, which is a strong call. I, I'm glad to hear that much from you on the Eagles. I, I do think they're one of the more interesting storylines coming into the season. They have done well in the preseason. Many people are kind of excited about them. And um, getting your take on it is helpful. Eric, we could only do this for about 31 more teams. But unfortunately, we're out of time. <laughs> we're going to have to let you go and do your things and jump on with another with another guest. But as usual, great to see you, man. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, take care and good luck this season. That's great. Eric Eager, head of R&D at PFF. You can follow him. I flipped his handle around. It's actually at PFF underscore Eric, at PFF underscore Eric. And... The PFF Forecast podcast is a delicious one. We recommend it. All right. That is Q1 here in the NFL Preview Show. We have three more quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to this year 2022 NFL preview show. This is Cade Massey hosting with Audie Weiner and Eric Bradlow. Our fourth co-host Shane Jensen is going to slide in here sometime before this show is over fresh or maybe not so fresh out of the desert. We are rolling into the second quarter. Now we have a couple more guests lined up in this quarter. You guys can always join in some way. We love hearing from you. Our handle on, on Twitter's at W Moneyball at W Moneyball. Hit us up with questions, suggestions, ideas, critiques, whatever you got. You can also send us email. We have a mailbag. The email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything you send. We love hearing from you. We get as much of it as we can onto the air. All right, just off the phone, just off the Zoom phone with Eric Eager rolling into another longtime friend of the show, longtime guest of the show, and one of our favorites, Brian Burke. Brian works with ESPN now. He was really one of the pioneers in football analytics, and he's doing still pioneering work there at ESPN, one of the leaders in their stats and information groups analytics team. Brian, good to see you. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's always a lot of fun. Well, you're wearing an Oreos hat, and it's funny because I was just thinking earlier today or last night about how oddly we have now look i've got a couple of yankees on this zoom call so same division i can't speak for them but i have a lot of people in my life who are or like close people in my life who are diehard orioles people are you are you are you a diehard orioles fan i was born like two blocks away from memorial stadium and lived the first several years of my life in literally in the shadow of Memorial Stadium. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, before we moved moved out out to the county, um, but uh, yeah, so you could say yeah. And so I, I was I'm a big Baltimore fan, and we lost the Colts in '83, uh, and that was that was quite a blow. Um, and so that's when I just really adopted the Orioles, and I was just uh, okay. just fell in love okay. with them. So you're a little too young to have grown up on the famous of all famous Colts quarterbacks, but you must have grown up in like the Burt Jones era, I'm guessing. Burt Jones is my first memory of a quarterback. Yeah. Yeah. Was was who is their running Lydell Mitchell their running back? Do I have that right? Yes, Make at it, one point. I, I'm not sure how much they overlap though. But uh yeah, okay. uh Burt Jones is kind of a tragedy. I mean, he was he was just like a 
you know, Herbert Allen type prototype and then had a shoulder injury. And, you know, back then they couldn't do the kinds of arthroscopic surgeries they do now, where it might've been, it might've been like a two week thing and it just ended his career. Jeez. Okay. I didn't, I, I didn't, I mean, I was following from a distance. I didn't even know that detail. Listen, man, let's jump into 2022 Baltimore, just straight in. What is your expectations for the Ravens? The Ravens, I mean, what's the arc? The arc is, man, it looks so promising. And then people are getting skeptical about Lamar. People are always, some people are always skeptical, but getting more skeptical than the injury to him after unprecedented series of injuries around the team. And now, you know, you look at all the expectations and they're clearly in, in terms of expectations, second tier, depending on how broadly you cut that tier, it could be third tier. What do you think is going to happen with the 2022 Ravens? Yeah. So I'll tell you what our, our model saying. Um, and I am, I'm quite biased, uh, but we do have, we do have, you're in good company. You're in good company, Brian, the, or the, or the Ravens are one of our adopted teams for sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, very analytics friendly team. Um, I t- definitely love staying in touch with them, but they, so they're one of the most interesting stories, I think, because they have all these, they have these like cataclysmic injuries, just historic levels of injuries last season and still came within a game or so of making the playoffs. And just imagine a team like that. So imagine a team that was half a game, a game out of the playoffs and then signed like the, uh, 12 free agents who are all in their prime, you know, all pro quality players. And you would, you would kind of put them up in the, in the first tier. I don't think they're that high. I don't think they're first tier, they're a second tier team, but we, we like them, you know, a game, game and a half better than, than probably the consensus just because of all the players that are, they're, they're getting back. Mm-hmm. And where does that put you on forecasting their wins? Uh, we like Baltimore, Probably 10, 10 and a half. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you like them best out of the AFC North? Uh, pro- by a hair over Cincinnati. Cincy, probably. It'll, yeah. We think it'll come down to them, obviously. We're, we're a little uh, pessimistic on Pittsburgh in that division. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. there, I think there's some some Tomlin magic going on maybe in Vegas. It's <laughs> kind of, you know, because he just doesn't have losing seasons. But, um, you know, Quantitatively. What point does that shift from being a reality to being a narrative? Because it's such a great narrative. So everyone kind of, I can get pulled into it. We can all get pulled into it, but this may be a real stress of that. Just in general, in terms of the importance of coaching, uh, I've come around. Like, I, I think it's, it's very important. I think he's obviously an excellent coach. You can't, there's not a case to, you know, there's not really a case to make uh, against that. So, um, but no, no, yeah. I agree that, that, that he's – let me make sure I'm not misunderstood. Of course, 100%. But does that mean he's a lock to not – so the deal yeah. is he hasn't had a losing season in forever. If does he can make – he, he just announced Mitchell Trubisky as the starter. If he can make Mitchell Trubisky right. a 500 quarterback, he's coach of the year in my view. Right. <laughs> that, that, I think that a lot of people are making that bet, but quantitatively that just doesn't <laughs> – that doesn't show up in the numbers. Brian, let's let's stay in that division and let's jump to the 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 team you just mentioned, the Bengals. And to help us better understand what we should expect out of the Bengals, can you talk a little bit about the tools you would use if someone came to you and said, "Hey, we need to understand Joe Burrow. Is he, you know, which Joe Burrow is he? Is he going to be? What's he going to be?" You would and say, "Okay, Brian, take the time you need. Break out all the tools you need." How would you go about determining what you think of Joe Burrow? What tools would you have at your disposal? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is what really stood out about the Bengals last year was their offensive line was 
I don't know, 28th, 30th in the league. It was just, um, it was an amazing accomplishment to do what they did with such a poor offensive line. So I would kind of start there and you'd have to credit Burrow. You know, you, you would look at his his numbers and you would think, well, with a better offensive line, can he do, wouldn't he do better? And so I think that that's one thing that comes to mind. He did have, he has this great receiver room though. So mm-hmm. in that regard, mm-hmm. you kind of have to, uh, um, you know, you know, downgrade him a little bit. Um, you know, how much exactly? I, I don't know. Um, wh- one thing I've been working on my, my project this year is this big uh, receiver metric based on tracking data. And mm. um, as a matter of fact, it's, it's largely motivated by things uh, you guys have talked about, about in terms of con- players creating their own context. Anyway, like mm. if you drop what I, one of the things I had to do with the receiver metric was kind of account for the quarterback. And yeah. um so I, I had to, what's weird is like, well, the quarterback helps the receivers, but the receivers helps the quarterback, a quarterback with bad receivers. How do you, so what I did was built this adjusted plus minus type model, like you would in basketball or something mm-hmm. so that you kind of solve that, solve that matrix. And um, I would look at those numbers. I would look at, Hey, because he's got this great receiver room, you know, what does he still pop up above average given, yeah. given the, the presence of those receivers? Uh, so I, those are a couple of things that come to mind. Brian, can you, I, well, you're, we always want to know like, what's your big project? You work in this way. I, I fantasize about growing up and being an adult and working in this way sometimes. Like take one project for a while, just do one project for a few months, yeah. just one. And some of the neatest work comes from colleagues of ours who take that, a fo- that focus. You seem to be one of them. So you said it's about receivers. And yeah. you said, yeah. um, obviously, this is a complicated issue, but can you say any more about how you, quote, solve that matrix by working an adjusted plus minus model for a receiver room versus the quarterback? Well, for particularly for like, there's, there's three parts of this metrics, like getting open, making catches, contesting catches, and then generating yards after catch. So, but for the, the catch part, right, what's, what's really important is the uh, quarterback accuracy or get, getting, okay. putting, the, putting the ball on target. And what's interesting too is the openness depends on the quarterback, which is something you've discussed, like in, 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 the, in regards to say Mahomes, right? Mahomes can, you know, let's say a quarterback can move a safety with his eyes, but, mm-hmm. but they're doing a lot more than that. They're extending mm-hmm. a play to a point where the mm-hmm. receiver is going to come open or they're making the correct read and they're selecting the receiver. So mm-hmm. that, um, the the quarterback actually makes receivers open and vice versa. So hold up, Brad, you just said something that, that helps me understand. So some of it is literally he's helping some individual receiver get more open, but some of it is he's throwing to the guy who is more open. So he's selecting on yeah. openness. Okay. Yeah. So the, the, it's, it's, it's sort of the circular problem. And so when you have a circular, like, Hey, somebody on the court with LeBron James, his plus minus numbers are going to be really, really good because they happen to be on the court. Together. Like my plus minus, if I play in the same, you know, stints that um, LeBron James played, maybe my plus minus would be pretty good in the NBA, right? But you have to account for the fact that, well, I'm on the court with LeBron or you have to account for the opponent and so on. So that's what adjusted plus minus modeling does is you, you basically, the predictors are the presence or absence of a certain player. And then you, you have this result variable you regress upon, and then you get coefficients for every single player. And that, those coefficients represent their value. How do you do it when one player doesn't really vary? Like if every snap is taken by Joe Burrow or whatever, or almost every snap. 
Well, we do it across seasons. Um, so the, the receivers that he has have had different quarterbacks. They have injuries, of course. Um, okay. So, yeah, it requires a pretty large sample size. Uh, and there's a Bayesian aspect to it, too. So if you don't have quite the sample size needed or, or the, you know, the, the, the matrix is singular for you, as we say, uh, you don't have that mix, um, then, then, you know, we make adjustments. All right. So give us, give us what you consider to be the takeaway from that analysis so far. When, you, when you're able to crunch the numbers in that way and you're able to say something about the relative contribution of a receiver or a quarterback to an outcome or even the passing game more generally, what, what, how is your thinking shifted? How should we be thinking about that thanks to the work that you're, you're doing now? Well, I, I think, um, well, in general, Receiver performance from year to year is, is very mercurial. It, is, it varies quite a bit in terms in relative to to other positions, relative to other other sports. Um, they can go hot and cold. Uh, the the other thing is that you know quarter, quarterbacks obviously make receivers look better, um, but they also make them actually be better too. And you have to account for that. Um, but honestly, the big takeaway is is out of this project was something you guys talked about a lot where you said take a receiver for example he's generating his own context so if you have a stat like what's called cpoe now completion percentage over expected that it's tempting to kind of turn that around and look at it through the lens of a receiver and use this typical what it is is a a typical residual analysis, right? Where you, you make an estimate of something happening, let's say 75% chance there's going to be a catch given all the array of players and positions and velocities and everything in the tracking data. And then if they actually make the catch, so if, if you predicted 0.75, they actually make the catch, you credit them with that residual, the plus mm-hmm. 0.25. If they fail to catch it, you debit them the, the 0.75 residual, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the problem with that approach is that it um, it really it, it undervalues the contribution of that player to creating that context, right? right. So Devontae Adams can get open. And so you're, you're, you're setting the bar basically too low. Right. And so the solution to that was, was to set, set a benchmark um, against which you, you, can, you can grade um, that's in general. So we have all these contributing models. So we have this big library now of things like coverage, classification, uh, route identification, lots of other things, too, that tell us, well, given this route versus this coverage, given that he was in the slot, this deep and this far from the side, all these different things, we know he should have an openness, let's say, right. a predicted completion percentage of this. He actually has yeah, given right. this. And so the delta between those two things um, is is the rating, is the metric. And so okay. we did that at several stages in the play, you know, right. as far as getting open, making catches and generating yak. And that's, that's going to be, that's the takeaway. I think, um, I think we've taken a big step towards solving that. Uh, phenomenal. It's super exciting. I'm, I want to, you're giving us credit for that conversation. I mean, we certainly, certainly a drum that we beat around here, but I want to say one of the times I came away most acutely thinking about that was after watching you present at a pre-MIT conference a few years ago, some of the early work from the motion tracking data on quarterbacks. And you were raising some of these same questions back then. And in fact, I, re- I remember I wrote a long note to Audi coming out of that conference about it. Man, it should, there should be a research program 
on creating context, changing context. And we're great at adjusting for context, and we're yet to credit people for the contributions they make to that context. That's exciting, Brian, super exciting. Um, look, that, <laughs> we never know where these conversations are going to go. We could go a long way on that. Let's ask, let's ask for one kind of on-the-field story that you're interested in, it, whether as an analyst or just a football fan in this season, and here in the last minute or so, what's a, what's a storyline, any storyline? Does that have to be a mainstream storyline? What's something you're interested in about the NFL season? Well, uh, sticking on the topic of receivers, that's all I've been thinking about for a few months. Um, the, the, rece- the big name receivers who change teams. I want to see yeah. how that affects, their, how stable their production is, given that they're, they've got different quarterbacks, different coordinators, and, and, and so on. So you got like Hill and Devontae Adams, and, um, uh, and then uh, A.J. Brown, who yeah. in yeah. my metrics – is dominant. Um, I think he's going to make a big difference, not just for wow. Eagles, but I think it's, I think people underestimating what a difference he was to Tennessee. So we're, our projection model is a little under on Tennessee, um, not quite as over on Philadelphia, but my personal thought is he's, he's going to make a big impact. That's and you awesome. think he can make, you think Brian, he can make uh, Jalen Hurts look good? He could. Yeah. <laughs> all right just check <laughs> that's the that's the spirit that's the yeah that's putting the, I, think, I think hertz is going to have an up year i think hertz is going to have an up year but it's all going to be the the hertz show right but it's underneath the hood i think smarter football fans will know maybe it's it's the up that's awesome that's great all right well listen brian we'll we have to let you go for now we will have you back i'm sure appreciate your making time for us here in week one yeah thanks Brian Burke, ESPN. You can follow him on Twitter. Fantastic follow at B Burke, ESPN, at B Burke, Burke with an E. So there's two E's in that handle, at B Burke, ESPN. All right, continuing our NFL preview show with a string of our favorite longtime guests. We are now joined by Michael Lopez. Michael is the Senior Director of Football Data and Analytics at the National Football League. He, I believe he still has affiliation with Skidmore, where he was a longtime professor um, so he still practices there a little bit, still doing some research, but also running things in the shop there for the NFL. Michael, always great to see you. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Excited to start the season. I bet. Well, tell us what week one looks like for you. What's on your plate this week? What are you thinking about? What are you excited about? What are you worried about? Well, I mean, a couple scripts that I'll have to run Monday morning. Hope they work. Um, <laughs> other than that, you know, we kind of worry about the same things each week, right? You know, we want the games to be competitive, exciting, um, you know, there to be back and forth and fans to tune in and, and hopefully not a lot of injuries. So um, that's kind of what we keep our eye on, on, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, team one or team two or team 31 and 32, uh, you know, we, we kind of track them all the same way. And at some point we even lose track of who's playing. So um excited that it's getting here. And, and you know, especially after uh, I'm going to preseason, you know, we continually don't see a lot of, players actually playing in the preseason. So getting to the regular right. season is kind of a fun time for us. You mentioned um, health. And that's, that's obviously a, a often something we talk about. What's your sense of where the league is on health these days? Do you, do you feel like there's progress? Do you feel like there's increased wisdom around the league on how to handle players? I know it's a struggle and everyone's trying, but where's your sense of the progress? Well, I think there's been a lot of the things that the league has done that, you know, we could point to whether it's rules in the kickoff, 
um, recommended helmets that players should wear, um, even factored into a little bit of our overtime discussion last year with, you know, per play injury rates in overtime versus the first quarter. So I think the, the exciting area is that there's a lot of really good research um, and, and turning that into actual on-field changes has also been kind of uh, fun to be a part of. Um, so I, I think that's the good news. Um, the downside is, is there's still a lot of injuries in the game. Uh, it's a dangerous sport to play. Um, and, and that's a reality. And, and the other part is some of it might not be preventable um, in the sense that, you know, just by being involved in, in this, in this sport is a, is a risk, but, you know, I think the, um, you know, the, the part of our job and our group is to uh, weigh all the different changes to the game, whether it's rules or whether it's equipment or some other aspect that, you know, could have an impact on the game and, and health is obviously one of those components. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Michael, I was just going to ask you since, I call it, let's call it rule adjustment or equipment adjustment would be a function of, let's call it observed number of injuries and maybe compared to an expected number of injuries. So does that mean you guys have to do kind of predictive modeling for injuries and in some sense have some way to know, is it a positive or negative residual and, and, or when you do something, is it actually diminishing respect to some expectation? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for example, you could make a rule that would change the you know, hypothetically, you can make a rule that would increase touchbacks by 25% on kickoffs, right? Well, that's going to have some negative impact on the competitiveness of the game, uh, might lead to fewer people tuning in on the kickoff play. Um, and then, of course, on the injury side, there would be some expected number of, of injuries saved, um, expected number of concussions saved. So, yeah, that that's certainly well within the, the bandwidth of, of research the league should be doing. Um, that's hypothetical. But even with respect to, you know, overtime last year when we presented on the estimated impact of, you know, the, the proposed overtime, there's a lot of worry that you add more and more plays to overtime, you're going to increase, you know, the, the uh, number of injuries on players. So we were looking at, you know, league wide, you know, how many injuries would we be adding hypothetically if we went to this overtime? Um, And we even looked at how many injuries the following week, right? If you play more games in, you know, week one and you go to overtime, are you expecting more injuries in week two, Um, which didn't seem to be the case. That's yeah, those types of things and and making some projections, you know, from, you know, expectations would be, um, you know, certainly uh, stuff that we would be doing. Michael, would you, you've done, you've started something since being there at the league with the data bowls, and it's a way of sharing some data with the broader public involving the whole analytics community, kind of advancing knowledge communally in a way. Um, I want to hear more on the way you think about that, but here's one version of a question to push it along. Would you ever use injury data or health data in that way, or is it too sensitive? Or is it, is it complex enough to benefit from that kind of communal effort? Yeah, the, the league has actually put on a couple of health and safety-driven contests. Um, I've, I've sort of been in, uh, you know, affiliated with those a little bit, um, but they haven't been run by our team. But those, you know, for example, they have a, a, a model which has been put into production to look at uh, helmet detections and detecting using the tracking and the video data, how often, you know, helmets are are colliding, right? And, you know, that could be used to look at impact, uh, player level differences, you know, cumulative concussion effect stuff um, becomes a very epi, you know, uh, sports science type thing that is maybe not necessarily in our wheelhouse on the football data team. Um, but yeah, they're, they're doing the same type of things. And, and a lot of the things that, like the reality is, you know, we could churn and churn and churn to try and do some of this ourselves, um, but you end up getting better answers when you crowdsource publicly, um, and that's something we've learned, and I think they've learned as well. Mm-hmm. Well, say more about that crowdsourcing approach. 
How do you think about how football analytics or football knowledge advances, you know, writ large? And then philosophically, what's your position on how much of that happens outside of the NFL, uh, at the league level, at the team level? You've been a real catalyst here. How, how are you thinking about it? Well, I mean, honestly, try, trying stuff and failing it is really humbling. And so, you know, when I started maybe in 2019, you know, we, we had done one big datable version, but I remember talking about rush expectation for players. You know, we had a completion percentage model that the league was using at that point using the next-gen data. But, I, 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 you know, I tried it, right? I wasn't very good at it, right? And I would get like a, a projection of 2.5 and you look at the play and you're like, you know, Barry Sanders wasn't getting 2.5 yards. Um, <laughs> Eric Dickerson's not getting 2.5 yards. Um, so no, that, that, that projection's wrong. Right. And then we, we worked with right. some, um, you know, collaborators and, and consultants and they were still getting 2.5 or 2.3. Right. And, you know, it was a little bit of a risk when we crowdsourced it, but you know, that, that suddenly that projection is getting negative 0.5 and you're like, yep, that's, wow. that matches. Um, and so a big part of it was just, you know, we try stuff and we fail at it, but if you have a good enough sense of the question you're asking and what tools are out there, you know, you, you can, you know, the hope is that uh, the Kaggle competition or the, the big data bulls will get us a better answer. What's your sense of how that kind of insight or methodological advance trickles down into the buildings of the NFL franchise, the 32 NFL teams, if it does? How does that happen? I mean, I think teams answer questions in a variety of ways. That's the reality. And, and I don't exactly know what goes on, but I, I do think there is a recognition that when you have football data experts and they have tough questions to answer, you know, there are a lot of different ways to solve them. You know, maybe hiring a bigger team is one of them, maybe using external consultants that can do some specific thing. Um, you know, right now, I think a lot of them want to get college tracking data, for example. Um, that is, you know, kind of a goldmine for data, but that's really hard to do. Um, and so maybe you need some help to get, get yourself there. So, you know, I think there's a variety of data sets that teams want, a variety of new tools and new techniques um, and, and how they go about getting them. They, they usually don't tell me, um, but I do think there is the awareness that, there's a lot of really cool questions to be answered right now in the, in the football data space. I, I would think also, Michael, it would be very helpful for us as academics to understand what curriculum to teach. Because as we see what, you know, I'm talking about the college division of what you do, but I know there's also the open division. We can see what methods are actually useful and teach against those methods. Yeah. I mean, for us, that was, I mean, I, I'm a former slash current academic like that. I was right there with you, right? I was doing the um, you know, the baseball data and the layman package when I was teaching, because that's the only thing that existed out there. Uh, and for me, it was relevant to, to get people thinking about football data, novel questions. What does this data look like? And I also think it's, it's a benefit for us long term as a league, too. These are people that weren't necessarily thinking about football data careers that now are. Um, and they were growing up thinking about baseball data careers. That's what I was doing 15, 20 years ago. So, you know, having this data out there, I, I do think is a long-term benefit for the league in that sense too. Where do y'all, all five, all four of you guys, where do y'all think the best work is happening in football analytics? And here's a hard version of the question is, is what's the chance that it exists in academia? What's the role for academia in NFL research, whatever, what's going on among the community that Michael has built is so good. Honest question. Uh, yeah, I'll just go first with 10 seconds. I'll say um, from an applied perspective, I think it's definitely not happening in academia, but from a who's going to develop methods that might unlock some new insight, I think that's what academics jobs and role is. Yeah, just to follow yeah, up on that, I think one thing that kind of uh, 
prevents academics from, you know, doing that kind of cutting edge is the, you know, availability of kind of the high resolution kind of data that I think of the league and teams have. And it actually kind of just sort of emphasizes the importance of things like the big data bowl, where we get some academic exposure to the type of data that is out there so that we can kind of start, you know, working on these types of methods. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that the, you know, one of the things that academics were doing and did it in baseball is they got a chance to think about the biggest questions. And I'm not sure that the biggest questions are there for the academics to work on now in football. Um, I mean, you know, and it would be nice. I mean, Brian Burke. What do you mean? Turn- what do you mean by the bigger? What's an example in baseball? And what what could you imagine in football? Well, you know, so in, in football, I mean, for example, like valuating receiver effectiveness, if you don't have that tracking data, it's really hard to, to even weigh in deeply on that subject. Um, so that's kind of, I think, what's, what we're missing. It's, it really follows what Shane is saying. But I still think there's big questions. I think we have to creatively look at it. I mean, I mean, I think they're still out there, and uh, and we should be able to solve them. Y- y'all are more sanguine than I am on academic research in this space. I think it's the community is so powerful and so widespread, and the energy and the data and the people are so resourceful. I'm 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 more deeply skeptical. I think. It's just kind of a different enterprise, academic research. Michael, I'm the curious, problem that I have really... is that they're not they're not actually writing it up, and and uh, and so <laughs> they, still it's written, and, and you know then then it's just well, it's because the academic chat, journals right? don't want it. Well, no, they a don't want to the publish ac- in academic journals either. I mean, why bother? Well, Put too. up a five thirty eight article and and move on. Michael, yeah. I'm curious your perspective. You're kind of you're straddling these two worlds. One of the things that is the reality for teams is they like they talk to us about the submissions and they really like the idea that they can scope out some of this talent and then bring some of the people in-house to work with the ideas that their team wants. And I wouldn't exactly say that some of the things that we've done in the Big Data Bowl have instantly led to, you know, no, no one's going on from our competition on the secondary and saying, you know what, this player ranked this person over this person, so we're going to go sign that player. Like I'm not, I'm, we're not naive. We, I don't, right, like that, that's not happening. But what they are saying is, okay, listen, this person, this, these are the skills we're looking for. This person can code. We'll bring this right. person in. So right. I, think, I think that is part of it. It's as much about the metrics themselves as it is the folks who can do it. And obviously just, you know, small iteratively building out the, the process for, for analyzing this. Um, the other reality is there's a whole element of NFL analytics that salary cap type stuff that just is a little bit beyond our purview but is really fundamentally how teams think, right? It's not just about the on-field data. It's building a team and constructing a team. And it's hard for us to, to really loop ourselves into that big picture. Mm-hmm. Those are some big, difficult questions as well. Michael, before we let you go, just in the last minute or so, what are you thinking about next? I know you're, you're always figuring out what the next data bowl question is going to be, but just generally, what do you think is the frontier of our knowledge on football? What is the most important frontier to be pushing right now? Goodness. Uh, I mean, I would say I think there's a lot of stuff about season level construction of practice and uh, things like that. So, for example, you know, when you're building a team, you're building a practice schedule, you're building when players are playing and when they're practicing and when they're rotating in a game and all those types of things. Those are really hard questions. But I do think that there's a lot of player performance type data that that can help optimize when players are, are, are at their, their best. Um, and, and do I know how to do that? Not necessarily, but I do think that a lot of teams are trying to, to look at that holistically as opposed to it's practice time, they go practice, and then you figure out what happened at the end of it. Maybe there's, there's something to be said for, for building sort of an optimal season for, for both the league level and then also if you're on a team, you know, having the players you know, do, it, do various things to, to help your team win. Neat. 
neat. That, that can imagine that being very challenging. I mean, that whole field of statistics and science is challenging enough. Um, and then you've got CBA. Can you come in there and like be friendly with the union and let them know that you're on their side? That's fascinating. That's really cool. Um, all right, man, we had to let you go. Unfortunately, always a pleasure to talk to you. Best of luck to you here week one and with the season, Michael. Thanks, everyone. Pay attention for the Big Data Bowl. Should be a good one. We'll be launching in a couple of weeks. We will promote it. Absolutely. And we will send people your way. All right. That is Michael Lopez, Senior Director of Football Data and Analytics at the National Football League. He's a great follow, by the way. We've got his handle here somewhere. I can get it for you. Michael, real quickly before you go, your handle on Twitter. Stats by Lopez. Yes, at Stats yes, by Lopez. Stats by Lopez. Very good. All right, guys. That's been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the 2022 NFL Preview Show, one of our favorite events of the year. We now have the whole crew in here. Shane Jensen just arrived, calling in from somewhere out west, points west, doing Shane Jensen things the last many days. Uh, Adi Weiner is here, has been since the top of the show. Eric Bradlow's here, been here since the top of the show. This is Cade Massey. Rolling into Q3 now, we have two interviews in this quarter. First up, our longtime friend Josh Hermsmeyer. Josh is a football writer. He has been with 538 for some time now. He's also beginning some work with PFF, I think. We need to hear more about that. But Josh, always good to see you. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks for having me on. One of my favorite parts of the season is the kickoff show with you guys because it means the NFL is back. That's right. It means the games are coming soon. Well, we'll get you again later in the season, of course, but we always want to check in with you at the top of the season. What are you thinking about this week? What are you you most intrigued to see this weekend? I'm really excited to see Baker Mayfield and his grudge match against Cleveland. I think that's going to be tremendous appointment television. I'm with so, you. Yeah. This is a big storyline. I'm with you, Josh. Well, I want to know, Josh, how much of that interest is the uh, sport side of it and how much of it is the emotional drama side of it? Oh, definitely the personal interest stuff. I mean, he's got a huge <laughs> chip on his shoulder. He's, uh, you know, he's a fiery guy. He feels like he was treated poorly. Yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is going to be excellent. That that's good. That's good. All right. Well, where are you on the Baker Mayfield is not a top tier quarterback consensus that seems to have emerged over time? Just like there is no uncertainty about this, it seems to me rhetorically. Where where are you on that? So I would argue with the Cleveland fans when they said that they needed to extend him early, or that you know uh, his first couple years in the league, especially his rookie season, were indicative of you know, a a kind of caliber of quarterback that you want to sign for a long time. I would argue that, no, we probably don't have enough information to justify an expensive, he's a 1.01, an expensive early signing. So I kind of argued against that, but now it's kind of turned the other, it's turned the other way too much. I, I think he could actually do pretty good in Carolina. I think he's a serviceable quarterback. He's probably a slightly above average quarterback. And, uh, for, for a team like Carolina, I think that's probably fine for the season. You know, I have him connected to you in a way. Your analysis of the draft when he came out was one of these places. I think the stats that you ran, if I remember correctly, 
showed that his completion percentage was dramatically better than the other quarterbacks. And he came out in that five quarterback draft or whatever, and he just popped statistically, like maybe it was downfield. I forget exactly what it was, like downfield completion percentage, head and shoulders above the others that I, in a way that I hadn't anticipated, even after watching him for a number of years. Yeah, he, he, he did really well when uh, we adjusted for um, competition and depth of target and all that kind of stuff. And um, I know lots of other people's models liked him too. I know uh, um, he just, he, he had a really good statistical profile and uh, all the intangibles obviously were on his side, except for his, uh, his measurables in terms of height. But uh, you know, he, he was a good prospect. I think he was a good bet for Cleveland to make and a hundred percent, just, just no, no question. I meant that as praise, by the way, Josh. It was one of these things where I'd watched the punk play ball for OU for years, and I didn't realize how strong a prospect he was until I saw your analysis. And I think, I mean, teams obviously agree with you. So it's a very difficult thing to pull off. You just, speaking of quarterbacks, you just wrote a piece a couple weeks ago for 538 looking at a couple of interesting quarterbacks, um, Daniel Jones, um, for one, and, and, um, Curious, can you can you walk us through what you saw in in there? Do you you know he's one of the, another one of these is like okay, high, highly thought of coming out, maybe not as much as the Giants thought of him, but what do we think is going to happen next? And then uh, Trey Lance, of course, with the Niners. Yeah, so Daniel Jones is one of those toolsy quarterbacks that came out that people had high hopes for that he would develop into the role and just hasn't. And now there's a new regime in in New York, and people are kind of down on them. I think the markets have them finishing last in the East and uh, our ELO model has them at eight wins kind of tied there with Washington. So there's not a lot of kind of hope. Uh, and I think that maybe the Giants fans should have some reason for hope, but now it may be misplaced, uh, but I'll give you my pitch. And that is that Brian Dabble came from a system in Buffalo where they really worked on a kind of similar quarterback toolsy quarterback that wasn't very accurate in Josh Allen. And they kind of mashed every single easy button that they had scheme wise to make <laughs> his reads more defined and to uh, and and to help fool the defense. Right. So to kind of give him uh, give give them make them fool them and define the read. So what they did was on thirty two point eight percent of offensive plays in twenty twenty, they they ran play action and it paid off really well. I think thir- almost forty percent of their passing yards came on those. 32% of the plays and they ran it back again in 2021. It was around 32% of plays were play action and nearly 40% of their yards were gained on those plays. So they were effective play calls and it really helped Josh Allen kind of uh, mature into this quarterback we know now, which is uh, one of the top three or four elite quarterbacks in the NFL. The giants were 16th in play action in 2021 and, and they were 21st in yards gained on those plays. So there's a lot of room for volume improvement in, in those kind of scheme uh, scheme specific plays and the play action and stuff. And there's also room for efficiency gains. So I I think if Dable will bring that package to the giants, which you would kind of assume he would, uh, then I think there's a, a, you know, a reason for optimism in New York, The, Mm -hmm. the argument against, uh, is that perhaps this was all the head coach in Buffalo. If you look at Dable's history, he wasn't very uh, progressive when it came to play calling prior to his time in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. So Josh, mm-hmm. one of the things I'm always interested in when someone presents a stat like that is, that, is there a 
point of diminishing marginal returns? Like, is it 40%, 50%? Why not do 70% play action if it's so effective? No, eventually at some point, the defense is going to know it's coming and therefore it'll be ineffective. But in any statistical modeling have you seen, has someone actually shown in some sense the nonlinearity of it and when might be the optimal stopping point? Or maybe we just don't have any data. It's better in the range of data we see. And so firms, uh, uh, clubs should do even more of it. Yeah, great point. And I think, there are people who are picking up on perhaps diminishing returns. Um, there's a former analyst for the Baltimore Ravens that moved to Miami, uh, Sean, uh, and he he seems to have picked up a little bit on perhaps play action isn't quite as efficient as it once was. But the problem I found with this analysis when I tried to replicate it was that how to describe play action. It's always better, right, than a normal pass play. But the year-over-year stability of play action is, is, is just wild. There's almost none. It's always better. It's always better than a, a bog-standard passing play. But even if you're really bad at play action one year, you could be really good at it the next. So there's a lot of variance inherent in the measure, and especially when you use things like EPA for play, that it makes it difficult to say, are we really witnessing diminishing returns based on volume, or is it just one of those weird quinks mm-hmm. in, the, in the data year-over-year? Year? So I think the, the, the jury's still out. Um, people used to make this kind of, for 10 years, they've been making this kind of claim against passing. And we've seen an increase in volume over the past decade from 2010 to 2020 and almost no diminishing returns. I mean, certain years were worse, but then it popped back up the next year. And uh, I, I think that it's, it's a legitimate concern, but uh, as you pointed out, I just don't think we've seen it in the data for long enough yet to think that we've reached that point, that inflection point. Yeah, I mean, and do you think with play action specifically, is that variation that you're talking about kind of inherent? Like, is it just a really kind of stochastic sort of kind of strategy? Or is it more more that variation? It's explainable if you were to be able to kind of dig in and incorporate in who the running back, who the line personnel is, all this type of stuff. Tough to say. I think that uh, what you're really doing is you're fooling the middle of the defense and the linebackers and I ran an analysis in 2019 that showed that even at the extremes of play action run in a single game, that the movement that was induced by a play action pass never really, never really changed. Linebackers still bit over and over and over again. What one of the things that Sean found was that um, he, he found that that biting had stopped uh, after a certain number of plays and that perhaps coaching had changed. The coaching points used to be, Look, your job as a linebacker is to run fit. You got to get in there and stop the run. And perhaps some coaches across the league are, are are now coaching their linebackers to play the pass first. So if that's occurring, then and if and if that's occurring at scale across the league, then I think that could uh, be one of the reasons why play action might in the future be less efficient. Efficient. Pardon me. Hey, Josh, real quick, that that analysis, it's another one that I definitely always associate with you. How do you think of yourself as a mix between analyst and writer? Uh, that's, that's a good question. I mean, sometimes I'm told to tell the story of the season. And, uh, so when you do that, you kind of grab for any kind of data or analysis that's going to help you tell that story. But what I try and do is as much as I can, if I'm making forward looking statements to kind of ground them in, in predictive metrics, or at the very least comment and let sure, make sure my readers understand that, um, I may be citing a certain statistic, but there's there's no real consistency in, in, in that particular metric uh period over period and and so to kind of give them 
give them the sense that while I'm describing something that happened, we shouldn't take it too far and, and think it's something you should place a wager on or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, listen, um, speaking of wagers and, and trying to embrace, I'm, I've been looking for someone to, to, to naysay the bills. They've, they've emerged so clearly as the favorite and kind of head and shoulders. Ben Baldwin just ran the uh, expected power rankings based on the point spreads for the whole season. And it's, you know, Bill's head and shoulders above everybody else. And you're enough of a contrarian to have a naysay on this, I'm guessing. So do you believe in the Bills? Should they be this much the consensus? I mean, I love the Bills, but come on. Yeah, uh, I think if if there's a chick of their armor, it's that people are kind of expecting their defense to run it back just just exactly how they did in in 2021. And it was generationally good. And I I think that that's highly unlikely. So, you know, that real real quickly on that, Josh, that it seems like the we're supposed to all believe that defense doesn't persist as well as offense anymore. Right. So is that one of the reasons you say it's highly unlikely that they'll do as well next year or this year? Well, just that just that any kind of performance of that magnitude is hard to replicate. But but it's especially true on defense. Um, Okay. And then, but, but look, if, if Josh Allen is the quarterback, he was in the playoffs last year. I mean, they, they they played a game where they, they scored a touchdown on every possession in the playoffs. Like if Josh Allen can, can take some of that kind of growth that we saw in the playoffs where he just became otherworldly, like then all bets are off. And, and I think uh, people should be bullish on the Buffalo bills. What what, I, what do you what do you think about that though? I mean, what is your understanding or belief about Josh Allen? The last time we saw him was one of the most heartbreaking losses I've seen, and I've been a Bills fan for a long time. Um, what 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 do, what Josh Allen do you think we'll see in twenty twenty two? Again, regression to the mean. I mean, you just called it on the defense. And, and one I, kind of part of that, I think, if you could comment, is I feel like if there's any chink in the armor, it's that it's Josh. You know, Josh Allen is in, gets injured. It's a very different um, team. And you could say that about any elite quarterback in the league. But do you, do you kind of feel like more mobile quarterbacks are even more prone to that kind of like uh, particular like variation or like potential for injury? That's a good question. I mean, so I've seen analysis that have shown that mobile quarterbacks actually keep themselves out of harm's way to a certain degree because they're not in the pocket where the massive hits occur. So maybe there's an argument to be made that once you get outside the pocket and you're approaching the sideline, you better control the uh, severity of the hits that, that, that you take. So maybe, maybe that's part of it. He's also a really big dude, and, and it's hard to take down with, more, with, with, with just one guy. So maybe he also has an advantage there. But the way I view running quarterbacks is they have an extra out, right? So that if the play isn't there, obviously they have another way to gain yards and be productive. So I think Josh Allen kind of is the entire package to answer Cade's uh, question. And I, and. And yeah, I'm, I believe, I think that, I think that last year I was kind of waving the flag of regression and I said, you know, Hey, look, no one's ever done what he did from year two to year three after being so poor. Um, but he's done it back to back. He's been elite two years in a row now. And now my priors have shifted and I'm ready to say now. And uh, mm-hmm. I think this guy could be, could be pretty good for a long time. Also, Josh, how, I mean, I was just looking, isn't Case Keenum their backup? And I was just looking at his stats. He's thrown for 15,000 yards. He's got, I think, 76 touchdowns, 46 picks. He's got a QB rating of 85. I mean, you could argue he's not in the bottom quarter of starting quarterbacks. I mean, that's those numbers would put him in the middle of the pack. So, I mean, Case Keenum's not horrible, right? 
Case Keenum won 13 games. Uh, Kirk Cousins with the Vikings has yet to top 10. So I, I don't know. I, I think Case Keenum is, is a great backup quarterback. I think last year they had who? Trubisky. Trubisky's a starter now. So they, yep. they've done a, they've done a good job in Buffalo of, of really kind of, uh, making it, making insurance plays just in case something does happen to Josh Allen. But, uh, yeah, great point about Keenum. Okay, last question for you. Then we'll have to let you go. Um, more quarterbacks. You're wearing a Bengals cap, I believe. So where, what is, what's up with that? And what's your take on Joe Burrow, another man who could be primed for regression? I mean, or could be the next great quarterback in the NFL. Yeah, he's injured still, or at least he's recovering from an injury. Uh, um, so I'm, I'm a little worried about that. I get reports were that he lost 20 pounds. Like that's crazy. Oh, so hopefully he's worked himself back into shape. Um, the reason why I'm wearing the hat is once, and this is boring stuff, but once a year, I'll try and make it quick. Once a year, buddy and my go, me go to, uh, one stadium we've never been to before. So we're a little over one third of the way through. So I should finish this, uh, when I'm in my mid to late sixties. So, uh, but no, this nice. year it was, uh, the Bengals. Okay. Okay. Good fun. Well, listen, man, we're going to let you go. Enjoy the season. Enjoy week one. Enjoy the, um, the personal vendetta bowl with Mayfield. This sounds like it'll be high on your watching list. That is going to be fun. Um, always a pleasure to talk with you, Josh. We'll talk with you during the season. I'm sure. Great. Thanks guys. Josh Hermsmeyer, long time in front of the show. You can see him on 538. You can see him with PFF now, and you can follow him on Twitter at Frisco. Josh, I believe is the handle at Frisco. Josh. All right. Continuing with our last guest here on the NFL preview show, we're delighted to have Laura Rutledge back on the show. Laura, as many of you know, is host of NFL Live on ESPN. She's also host of SEC Nation. We're going to have to talk a little bit of college football before we do NFL. And this year, she's going to be covering some games on the sideline, a few games, including, I think, an early season game for Buffalo, which will be a lot of fun. Laura, great to hear from you. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be back with you guys. You keep yourself pretty busy. Where where are you right now? What are you in transition from or to? What's on your plate at the moment? Yeah, you know, NFL Live five days a week, and then uh, on the weekends go into the college football world and host FCC Nation. So a lot of work, but a whole lot of fun. So you just came out of uh, the Arkansas game, the Cincinnati-Arkansas game, game one, I think. Um, and before we talk about NFL, I've got to get your reaction to what we saw week one in college football, which was so much fun. Um, but in particular, your alma mater, I think Anthony Richardson had a coming out that few people have had. What is your take on Anthony Richardson? Talk, talk me off of thinking this is the best, the best storyline we've seen in a while. My goodness. I mean, it certainly looks like it, right? Uh, if he can get any semblance of help around him, which we saw some some examples of that at times in the game against Utah, he, he's going to be such a rock star and so much fun. And, and I hate to say this from the college standpoint, but from the NFL standpoint, if that guy just retired from college right now and just kind of went ready to go for the draft, I mean, it, he'd be a top five pick. That's how impressive the skill set is. That's how much it makes NFL scouts salivate and teams thinking, man, imagine building a pro offense around this guy in the new age of NFL offenses. He is 
so fascinating. The reality is, you know, what you see on the field is exceptional. What you need to know about him off the field is he could not be more of a humble guy. He's calm. He's a great decision maker and a real student of the game. Uh, the way that he watches film, his commitment to all of that, his commitment to his teammates. I know it may sound like I'm just blowing smoke because I, I did go to Florida, but I promise this is an unbiased, just a, a report <laughs> about Anthony Richardson. I, he's going to be so much fun to watch here as long as he plays for the Gators and then certainly on the next level as well. Well, we're, I tell you what, you watch that game and it's, it's, you're kind of up for any, anything you hear about him. It seems like all of a sudden we have, a, we have appointment TV to watch Gators play this season and maybe a new interesting recall in the SEC. By the way, you, the, not only did you get a new football coach this year in Napier, but you got a new basketball coach. And you don't know this, but he's kind of the unofficial official coach of the Wharton Moneyball Show, Todd Golden. We've, we've had him on a number of times. We've been following USF for years, and we were excited to see him jump the take the jump up to, to Florida. I love it. So great. Like, listen, and Florida basketball has such a great tradition for all these years. Perfect guy for the job. It's going to be fun to watch him down there. All right, let's talk about NFL. What, what, this is a busy week, obviously a fun week. We've been waiting for months for this to happen. What are you thinking about going into this weekend? What are you most intrigued to watch this weekend? Man, there's so many good games. I mean, obviously, I'll start with the fact that the Bills, who are many people's Super Bowl favorite, go against the reigning Super Bowl champion Rams. And you just think about, you know, the potential of this being a rematch in the Super Bowl. I think it's possible. It's going to be really fascinating to see how all that ends up shaking out. And and these two teams are just so fun to talk about. The Bills have done everything seemingly on paper that they needed to do to fill just a couple of voids to where maybe they get just enough out of that defense to end up winning a game when when it really matters most. And listen, we know the offense is going to be exceptional. I'm excited to see Josh Allen's next step, which is really scary for opposing defenses. And then the Rams on the other side keep getting better as well. So that's going to be a phenomenal way to start the season. Another game that I'm fascinated by is the Cardinals and Chiefs. And think about Mm -hmm. some of the issues with the Chiefs' run defense. You've got a Cardinals team that's going to be running it all over the place, especially without DeAndre Hopkins doing it he's suspended. I think we'll see the the Cardinals use their tight ends a lot more than we've ever seen Cliff Kingsbury team up because they don't have many other options, right? And and you've got Kyler Murray who signed the big deal. What does he bring to the table? Can't wait to see that game. That one sticks out to me big time. And then, of course, got to call out the Monday night football opener on ESPN. You see the debut of Joe Buck and Troy Aikman, which we're excited about. But, man, the drama in this one with Russell Wilson returning to the Seahawks as a Bronco now, the weight of the world on his shoulders, the expectations of this Broncos team in a really competitive division. I am so pumped for that one and just so many great games to start the season it's like the nfl just doesn't miss with how they schedule these games and they don't back away from it do they they're just maximum drama in these matchups it's fun what they do oh yeah Say a little bit more about the Broncos. The Broncos have snuck up as one of the, you know, not top-tier favorites in the ASC, but just kind of right behind there with expectations pretty high with Russell Wilson, new contract, new owners. What are your expectations for the Broncos? Yeah, I think they're going to be really great. Um, I don't have them winning that division because it's incredibly hard to figure out who would even win it. I actually have the Chargers, which some people may say, well, wait a second, you know, you're picking a, a less proven quarterback over Russell Wilson. But I just think the Chargers as a whole on the defensive side of the ball as well are going to be that much better. And we're going to see market improvement on a team that was already good and got close at times and then weren't able to get it done. I think this year is different for them. But as it relates to the Broncos, they're an incredibly 
complete team. And, and I, what I'm interested to see is how does Russell Wilson look an offense that, you know, isn't necessarily built around him, but yet they're going to do a lot that's going to lend itself to his skill set still. And, and this is just a, a fact of the game, right? Some of his mobility has declined with age. How mobile is he? How much of the rust cooking do we see? And, and how does that play into the defenses that they're going to face in their division that ultimately determine their fate down the road? So uh, I'm really excited about this team. I do think there's still a lot left to be determined. And I could see them having some early bumps in the road, not saying they're losses, but maybe they don't look like they're going to end up looking down the road. It just makes common sense, right? It could take a little bit of time for this team to gel fully into what they'll be towards the latter part of the season. Mm -hmm. Let's jump across to the NFC. You mentioned the Rams, of course. uh, We've had a number of guests on the show today, and we haven't talked about a a couple of, one in particular, a very important team on the NFC side. Curious to get perspective from you on the Packers. Um, Rodgers getting up in age but not showing any real hesitation yet. Doesn't have the receiver crew that he's had in the past. What do you think of the Green Bay Packers? Yeah, I may be uh, one of the only people really doing this, but I'm picking him to be in the Super Bowl. I I actually think that Aaron Rodgers has such a chip on his shoulder. And and listen, like some of the chip on the shoulder stuff is overblown. I think for him it's not. Like this is a guy that takes things personally. He's petty as all get out, and that's okay because it's led to greatness, right? We've seen it on the football field. I think we'll see an offense that while so many people talk about, well, what are they going to be without Devontae Adams? You know, the times when Devontae Adams hasn't played for them or, you know, has been injured for whatever reason, they still had success. They've won those games. You can look at the numbers. It's all right there. Aaron Rodgers can be, if needed, a master at spreading the football around. David Bakhtiari coming back, you know, to shore up that offensive line. David Bakhtiari hasn't been that healthy, but when he has been, if he can remain healthy, which I'm counting on, I think that'll offer some nice comfort and protection for Aaron Rodgers. And their defense may be one of the best, if not potentially the best, in the entire league. I think they're going to be a force to be reckoned with. And you look at their path, nothing's ever easy in the NFL, but it's relatively easy compared to some of these teams on the AFC side and the same right. things that they'll have to go through to get to, to facing an NFC representative. So I'm going with the Packers actually to represent the NFC in the Super Bowl. Well, I think, well, Lord, just to just build a- on what you said, just to tie your two things yeah. together, let's compare them to the Broncos, who, in my view, are in the hardest division in football. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying the Packers are in an awful division, but I don't know. Vikings, Bears, Lions. I mean, that's not so great. You compare that with the yeah, AFC West and, hey, you know. I'm excited about what you're saying. You're right. <laughs> well, Eric, Eric, is, Eric is avoiding saying something else, and that is, what about my Bucks? He's, he's the Tampa Beer Bucks fan on the show. <laughs> you're clearly taking the yeah. pack over the Bucks. What is your expectation? Do you think they'll be right there, or do you think they might take a bigger step back? You know, I think they'll be right there. Uh, I just think it's, it's probably an opportunity in the NFC Championship potentially for the Packers to get the final the final lap there, right? But I actually am a little bit more bullish on the Bucks than I think some people are. I will say, I think they're going to have some bumps and bruises early on with the fluidity on the offensive line being in question. And listen, I don't want to overblow Tom Brady missing the time during camp. I think that's a little bit over-talked about. I think he's going to be just fine. I mean, he's Tom Brady. He's unbelievable but there are some issues you know when you look at the health of this team you look at the depth of the team especially just the fact of the matter is Brady doesn't like to get hit and you've got an offensive line that has been I mean just whether it's pure luck or the way that they put the team together 
has been very consistent during Brady's time in Tampa Bay. I, I don't think you can overlook that, right? That That is a key piece in football. You need an offensive line to protect your quarterback. And, and listen, they'll be up to the task, but what's the death look like? And, and what does that actually do when it comes down to it? I think the Saints, as always, have been a force working with for them in the NFC South against Brady. I mean, they know – and the Bucks get to the NFC Championship game. At that point, I just believe that Aaron Rodgers and the Packers are going to be just a little bit too much for them. But still, I mean, the Bucks to me are nothing to turn your head away from and think that they're not going to be a competitive team in that side of football. All right, you're making Eric's day. Appreciate that. Give us one team, <laughs> maybe a little bit. One team that may be a little bit below the radar. Some sleeper. If you had to pick a sleeper, who might it be? Who should we be paying attention to? Okay, you guys might think I'm crazy here, but I'm going to stick in the NFC South and say the Carolina Panthers. And I know all the stuff on Baker Mayfield, and I get it, but I just think they're going to be better than people talk about. They have some weapons offensively. I think Baker is a quarterback that, when given the right scheme and when given you know a little bit of belief from some of his coaching staff, which they got no choice. I mean, even just coming in and winning a battle at quarterback, even though it's against Sam Darnold and Sam Darnold got hurt and the whole thing, but but whatever. He still won the battle and he won it fair and square. I think that builds him up a little bit. And we've seen Baker, despite you know falling off in Cleveland eventually, it wasn't that long ago that he was leading them to success in the postseason. It was a big story. So I would I would circle the Panthers as a, a team not to overlook. And listen, if Christian McCaffrey can just stay healthy, even I mean, my goodness, like a, a little bit more than he has in the past, they they are scary. I think at times offensively. So I would single them out as maybe an under radar team. Mm-hmm. Laura, curious to hear your thoughts on how you consume football, how you think about football, how it's different than when you started. We're all, you know, we've all been watching football all our lives, but we, you know, we've got so much more information now, so many more people in the conversation now. We can think about it, consume it more critically. How do you think you watch and consume and think about football differently in the last five years or so? Yeah, I I think that's a great question. I mean, one of the things I would first point out is something that I'm fascinated by is some of the advanced metrics and some of the things that we can find out, right? Like you try to evaluate an offensive line and and you're looking at the the pass block win rate and the amount of time, you know, how how long they hold under their blocks as it relates to an average of two or so seconds. just, Just so many of these things that really are instructive on how a unit is performing at the highest level. I find that stuff to be fascinating, and I've really gotten into that side of it. So it, it, it has changed the way that I watch games because I am at times watching from a bit more of a numbers perspective than I was before. You know, so that that's one piece. But the other thing I would point out is just shouting out my teammates on NFL Live and Dan Orlovsky and Marcus Spears and Ryan Clark and Mina Kimes. The way that they watch the game and, and just the real time, even back and forth that we have on text messaging or whatever it is, sometimes we're watching games in person too, has taught me so many things about how to watch football. You know, Marcus's perspective on the D line and just some of the line of scrimmage play that 
having a seat at the table with them to where I can learn it from their perspective and, and how they see things. And then, of course, Dan, one of the best when it comes to EXO breakdowns. Ryan Clark, one of the absolute best when it comes to teaching the game and learning from him. And Mina Kimes, one of the greatest football minds I've ever been around. I've learned so much from them that I'm so thankful for. And it has changed the way I watch the game from a much more analytical, detailed perspective than, than I ever did before. And I'm so thankful for that because I love football, uh, but to be able to watch it from their viewpoint has really made a difference for me. You mentioned making use of some of the advanced stats these days. I mean, pass block win rate, for example. Are there are there questions out there that you hope that that community can answer in the future? Are there do you do you look at some of these stats and go, yeah, that's neat. I'd also like to know this, or I have a theory about this, or I hypothesize that. What what could the community add? to your understanding or advance the conversation? You know, that's probably a question that's like over my pay grade, but um, what I would say about that, it's really interesting. And and this may feel a little bit far afield, but I think it applies here. They're working on a lot of advanced analytics and they're using it on the XFL. So when the XFL debuts in the spring and we'll see it, you know, under the new tutelage of the rock and Danny Garcia, uh, you know, just, being around that a little bit, I, I went out and w- was part of their initial announcement, some of their launch, and watched how they were putting some of the stuff. I mean, it's literally um, sensors that go on the bodies of players. So even with quarterbacks, telling them exactly why a certain throw didn't go where they thought it was going to go. It's more for the players, but I think fans would be fascinated in some of that, even just breaking down plays and looking back and saying, well, it's because of this one errant spin on the football that you know it didn't get where it was intended to go we think about this game being such a game of inches and sometimes even centimeters and seconds and you know it all comes down to these little moments that end up mattering big time when it comes to who's going to end up winning and who's going to keep advancing and so to be able to really pinpoint those moments I think as a fan would be fascinating maybe I'm just a big nerd but I don't know I I feel like all of us would enjoy finding out a little bit more about that and, and being given the tools to do so so I I know, I know they're going to be trying it out on the XFL. They're already doing it. I bet we see a little bit more of that eventually transition to the NFL with the XFL as a sort of a, a model there that they can use going forward. Well, it's neat that they're, they're not exactly a minor league, but it is a place where there can be some experimentation yeah. a little bit off the, you know, off the high stage of the NFL. We're, we're going to have to let you go, but before we do, Laurie, one last question for you. Why, why do you hang on? You, you have this great ESPN NFL gig daily, but you hang on to the weekend SEC thing. And, and how do you think, I mean, not many people are doing this at that level, both college and pro. What, what impact does that have on you? What does it mean for, the way, for, for you as a football commentator? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'd say, like, when it comes time for the draft, the NFL draft, I, I've been covering the SEC all year. I've got such an inside peek at <laughs> who's going to be drafted because SEC players, which people maybe sometimes don't like the SEC, there's a ton of talent that comes out of the league. So it's it's great for me from that standpoint. But, you know, to really uh, take it into kind of the core of why I do it, I, I still keep on my phone, actually, the press release that came out years ago. Now it's been six years ago that, that I was joining SEC 
nation. And it, it was really the first time that a network took a, a chance on me and, and gave me an opportunity. And, you know, at that time, at, at 28 years old, I thought, I can't believe this is happening, you know. And so it's just always a reminder for me and something that I'll stick with as long as it's possible to me because I truly care about pouring into something that people have then poured into me previously to get me to this point, you know, just sending that back out into the universe and, and being committed to something that I feel like I've had at least some role in, in building up and, and continuing to grow. So I just never want to lose sight of the fact that, you know, somebody took a risk on me and gave me an opportunity and, and the SEC network was that for me and still is that. And um, what an incredible opportunity, you know, to be on these college campuses and then to cover the NFL throughout the week and have a chance to be, you know, on the NFL sideline and, and doing some of these shows on location for big events in the NFL. It's beyond anything I ever thought I would ever do. And so I just remain incredibly grateful that I have the chance to do it. I, I'm sure there's going to come a time when nobody wants me to do anything anymore. And, and, you know, at that point, I'll kick back and say, wow, th those were some really fun years that I'll always remember. Well, um, it's fun to watch you. I appreciate what you do. Good luck with week one in the NFL and, of course, week two on the SEC side. But thank you for taking the time in the middle of this business to spend some with us. Yeah, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you guys. You bet. Laura Rutledge, host of NFL Live on ESPN and sideline reporter for some of their games this season, also host of SEC Nation. It's basically college game day for the SEC. Travels to a different campus on the SEC each week of the year. That has been another quarter here on Wharton Moneyball. We still have one more quarter to go. We're going to do a little bit more on this NFL preview show and touch on a few non-NFL sports. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Traditionally our interview segment, but we just blew through five interviews in our first three quarters. And so we're going to hold this one back. We've got a 16-minute short-ish fourth quarter and we want to debrief a little bit of what we heard and talk amongst ourselves about the NFL season kicking off. We also will save a few minutes at the end to touch on non-NFL sports. Curious to get your take on a few things around that world, guys. But first, your take on these. This is an unusual show in that we recorded it start to finish in sequence. What did you make of the last hour and a half worth of interviews? Some of our favorite people in the sport talking with us about what's coming up. I think the thing that caught me the most is I'm still thinking about the Buffalo Bills and I'm just not buying as much into it as everyone else is. I just, I, I think they're going to be a very good football team, but you know, do I think they've got uh, even a more than a 20% chance of making the Super Bowl? maybe a 25% at most at most. I, I, I don't, it's like the major people are doing it. It's like, well, it's probably them in the league. Come on. No way. They're not that good. And I don't think they're a generational team. And I agree. I think Josh Allen is a bit of uncertainty there, not just about the injury that Shane talked about, but also uh, earlier. But I think just, you know, I don't know that he's an elite. I mean, he's a, he looks elite for a short period of time. But let's now see it where defenses are going to have a chance to adjust to him. I, I'm just not buying the bills as much as other people are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, uh, but you would agree they're probably the best team to lead. I, I, if I, there was nobody I would pick above them, 
But I'm just saying, I don't think their probability. You, you wouldn't so give anointed. any team. Uh, you wouldn't give any team like more than like twenty, twenty-five percent. Certainly, yeah, that's correct. Let me bring some data to the party. I, I don't. Uh, I, I don't have any stories to tell about football teams. So I thought I would just look at the at the preseason versus postseason Massey Peabody rankings. Thank you, Cade, for sending them along, um, or at least the distribution. It's so what's pretty, the preseason? Pre- which preseason and which postseason are you talking about? Just to be clear to our so, listeners. So, uh, so uh, basically, if you take the opening uh, point advantage over an average team, as determined by Massey Peabody ranking, or or you can use Ben Baldwin's uh, um, uh, Vegas rankings. I think they're probably quite similar. Plus or minus a tiny bit, and you uh, and you compare what happens after week eighteen. Like just now, the season's run out. Now where are they? Um, both these things are uncertain in some measure. They're not the true measure of the worth or value of a team. But it's interesting to see how much they move. And and they're I see. I see. So you're using. I, you're not talking. You're using past. Just to be clear, to listen. You're using past seasons of data. We've got yeah, the past season and postseason, and we're just uh, end of yep. the season. We're just trying to see how much movement there is. And there is a lot. I mean, okay. it's a lot. I mean, considering that most teams are between plus or minus four uh, points from each other, with the best team this year is the Bills at six, and there's some bad ones on the other side too, I guess, uh, who's the worst, uh, it looks like, but the Jets are probably close to it. Um, and uh, most teams are minus four, and the standard deviation is four. So that means just with the exception of maybe one or two teams on either end, Anybody could be anywhere at the start of the season, which is why it's so much fun. <laughs> Basically, we don't know so categorically who's going to dominate. It's a terrific, it's a terrific point, and, and um, I appreciated the question. And we can look at it more finely because one might ask, okay, fine, that's for the whole distribution. What about the teams at the top? And I'll do that momentarily okay. on the fly. But, but I want to say, one, I love that way of thinking about it, and it's such a great reminder. And I'm just giving you, I mean, Massey Peabody is an entirely decent system. We don't have the edge we used to have, but, you know, we're basically on market. And so it gives you a sense of how the evolution of our understanding of these teams changes over the course of the year, our understanding changes over the course of the year. And it's remarkable that they move that much. It really is. And we, we just doesn't feel that way right now. But if you look historically over the years, that's how much it moves. So by the Can way, just, that's instead why, of just to translate it into something that our listeners and maybe fans talk about. Um, if what we had to say, pr- using the preseason, predicting the NFL playoff teams, and then the, and then end of the year, who made the playoffs, how much overlap would that be? Because maybe I'll make this up. Maybe the Bills are a plus six and they only end up a plus three. Okay, well, okay, but they're still in the playoffs. Right, so how many teams would be overlapping between the two? And we've always talked, Shane, I think you and I have always talked about half roughly overlap from one season to the next, but that's not the same thing as preseason, end of season, how many make it. Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out too. It's oh, a sorry, little bit Kate. different question because it really requires yeah. a stem and because teams play different schedules and, and, and all of that. But, it, I mean, it's a, it's a good practical question we don't have the answer to on the fly like this. But, um, I mean, look, the, Adi's kind of working with the distri- distribution that we're looking at that people can't see. But, I mean, you're talking about a big bunch of teams. If you moved five or six points in the, in the power rankings distribution, you're dropping – you know, halves, you're going from the top half to the bottom half, that kind of move. And Adi's point, I think, is it doesn't feel like that right now where everyone's talking about the Bills and the Bucks and the Pack and the Rams, and that's kind of Chiefs. 
and assuming that those are the teams. And there's just a lot of there's a lot of volatility. I want to share what a sim looks like right now, just using those data. So I, you on unabated again, we talk about unabated um, as a, as as a place to run sims. It's just a place tools. They're not going to give you picks, but they're going to give you tools. You can drop in any number of power rankings, and unabated will run a sim for you. So just using the Ben Baldwin esque market lines to get power rankings, drop those in and then run a sim. And the thing about this sim that is good is it does what Adi's worried about. It knows that it doesn't know. The worst way you can sim is drop in your preseason rankings and hold them stable for the whole 18 weeks. You're assuming you know for sure what the quality of that team is. That's an easier sim to run, but your variance is going to be way too low because you've got to bake in the fact that you're going to be wrong. And if you look over the years, you can say exactly about how much you're going to be wrong. So this sim does that. And if you do that right now, we were talking Super Bowl probabilities, and it matches Eric's kind of rant about the Bills being, yeah, they're the you know, best candidate, but they're not likely. So using those exact Ben Baldwin-esque odds that come off of the betting lines, the unabated sim shows the Bills winning the Super Bowl 13.6% of the time, 13, 14% of the time. Definitely the highest, but then the Bucks at 10 Chiefs at seven and a half, Pack at seven, Rams at six and a half, Niners at five and a half, Ravens at five, Chargers at five. That's the distribution we're talking about. Yeah, let me ask a quick follow-up on this unabated. Can you actually control how much uh, parameter randomness you're introducing? In other a words, so bit. if you take the Ben Baldwin's Vegas as a fixed constant, and then you can say, well, we don't really know those. Those are those are estimates. Let's add about uh, two points or three points of standard uh, deviation to those. And then we'll run simulations with normal distributions on the outcomes of the games, standard yeah. deviation about 12, et cetera, et cetera. Um, can, you, can you tune any of these things, or, or, uh, or you just have to take it the way they give it? There, there's, there are a number of tuning parameters in there. There's, there are a lot of team-level parameters. You can play with quarterbacks if you want to. You can play with rankings if you want to. So those things can be tuned. You're talking about model parameters, and there is actually a, a tuning parameter for what you're talking about. And we think of it as like responsiveness to the data. So you can kind of strengthen up the prior or weaken the prior, which is going to is going to make those things move around more in response to what happens each week. I, I thought, Kate, you were going to talk about a different. I thought you were talking about a different form of randomness, which is let's say we have our power rankings right now, and let's say you take Ben Baldwin's, you put them into uh, unabated. Well, after week one, there's now a simulated set of outcomes. Now, of course, that changes the power rankings. Yes. Is that the form of uncertainty you're talking about? Because that's what I thought yeah. you were talking about, as opposed to what and I was, what, and I was that's different. About that's totally not different. what Adi was talking about. Adi was talking no. about you take those power rankings, you add randomness to them, and you run the simulation many times going forward. So which I just want to be clear. I assumed you were talking, Kate, about what I described first, which is as you do a one-step-ahead forward sim, uncertainty gets added because the, there's outcomes now. Or are That's you right. talking about there's uncertainty in the initial, you, you, you perturb those, and you run the sim assuming stationarity? No, you, it's more your model, Eric, because you have to you want to actually sim the season. And if you have an outcome, then you update your, you update your belief about the team. And so it responds. You but have to tune it right. You, if, you tune the in what way does it not make sense? This is a way of getting you don't because know why would going you be in. Chasing a, yeah, but why would you be chasing after random noise in your sim? Like suppose, supposing two teams play each other and then one team wins by twelve, but that's randomness. You made that up. 
right? Why no, would well, Adi, the, the degree to which we r- respond is a direct function of how strong our convictions were about our initial numbers. And so you have to have an understanding that your initial number is a distribution in order to be responsive to the outcome. But why would you in, in, incorporate it the way that you're describing it? I, I'm, I'm, we both agree that your initial numbers are distribution, but why would you seek out uncertainty in that initial number through a SIM involving random, normal rent and distributed point scores rather than understanding fundamentally what your distribution is on your initial values are and in incorporating that? I don't think those Just, are different. I, 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 think, not, yeah. I don't think there's... I, no. This gives you game level outcomes, which is one possibility for why you would worry about it. And it just operationalizes the variance in a very concrete week by week way. But you can yeah, tune would, it to have the same effect. Yeah, I would think, Adi, that in, if you were running a simulation, you wanted to capture uncertainty properly, which is what Cade was talking about. You'd want to understand both your form of uncertainty, which is uncertainty in initial values for sure. But then... If you wanted to simulate, let's say, end outcomes at the end of the season, seems to me like you would want to take in the potential variability in week-to-week outcomes, which could change. Of course, change of course. Your... Uh, that and, and, and actually also potentially a distribution of non-stationarity, because we do know that teams do trend up and down. No, so if, if you're trying to figure out who's going to win as, in numbers of games, of course you need that. That's, that's fundamental. But if you're trying to understand the distribution of the power ranking, not the actual outcome of the season, I'm not sure why you, why you think that chasing, having power rankings chase after random game outcomes is going to be the equivalent to actually modeling the initial variance in the, in the power rankings to start. And in fact, mathematically, that just doesn't seem coherent. And shouldn't be produce a, a, an accurate answer. I mean, by luck, you can you can backwards. I think you're answering. Decent. I think you're asking two. To, I think there's two questions being yeah. asked here. All right, very technical. Let's probably move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, what the, the the piece that I most worry about is that you want your sims variance to match historical variance, and you can tune these things in order to get that in probably either one of these methods. This is where we've ended up for a variety of reasons, but the key bit in my opinion, is that you get that variance. But, I, but I'm trying to convey also that this year it feels pretty open in some sense, but there's a lot of contenders in that kind of four to six or seven, four to seven or eight percentage chance of winning the Super Bowl, according to market odds and a reasonable sim. It's a little flatter, a little more open, and but we have to be reminded of that this time of year because people focus too exclusively on the very, very high top of the of the prospect list guys we're at about we're at about the three minute mark so let's just real real quickly touch on a few other sports that that the one that feels like we have to say something about is college football week one i mean week ones often are fun this felt unusually fun this was shane just in from the desert missed it sadly but like spectacular opening weekend in college football any high points for you guys well i think um Georgia looked fantastic. I think uh, they jumped to number two behind Alabama. You know, hard to know which of those two is better. I, I, the part I mentioned UK just before we started taping today was that Oregon not only Oregon went from eleven to out of the top twenty-five, and I just felt that was a strange change in ranking given they played the number two team. We knew there was a massive gap. Yeah. Lost by thirty something, twenty something. Would you have felt any better about it or worse about it? I just thought that was strange. But yeah, Georgia impressed me a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting observation. I guess you get housed like that on the you know high profile game. Everyone who was watching, and the voters feel like they have to respond. But 
Yeah, you might you might say I bet Oregon's back in the twenty the top twenty five before the end of the year, and if you believe that, then you probably shouldn't have dropped them all the way out just for losing a tough game against one of the best teams in the country. Um, we mentioned it with Laura, but that uh, Florida Utah game was spectacular. The Appalachian State UNC game was just college football at its complete. By the way, can that UNC player on the onside play, kick please get down? This is this when I when I was watching that game, I was saying this guy may have cost them the game. Just so you know, Adi, uh, UNC's up by one with thirty seconds left. Onside kick comes, the guy gets the ball, runs it in for a touchdown. They go up eight. If he just kneels down, the game's over. He ran it in, and then they came down and scored a touchdown. Had a chance to go for two to tie it. So all I'm commenting on is Matt Brown better coach that team better. Because I'm going to tell you, there were two or three times in that game where they gave away win probability very quickly yeah it was it was it was one of the wackiest games you'll ever watch it was we happened to catch it live with my family it was so much fun um there at the end but just complete craziness um i am gonna uh, you guys were giving me a hard time before the show i'm gonna i'm gonna go this texas alabama game this weekend the linus it was 17 all summer now it's 20 <laughs> so expectations are in check but uh, you know game day is going to be there big fox uh, uh noon kickoff is going to be there it'll be a fun atmosphere and we'll take in the number one team in the country playing what is hopefully an up-and-coming team we'll see we'll see how that goes um in just the last 20 seconds or so, gents, uh, where are we stand on the home run races? Judge has 54. He's four ahead of Maris's record. Shane, I know it's not the real record for you, but it's the American League record. We can all agree on that. And uh, Pujols is at 695. I hope he gets to 700. Which is more likely? Yeah, Judge. Question, judge right? getting, judge, judge getting judge, over. Yeah. Judge. Uh, yeah. Judge. Is Pujols going to get 700? No. I would love for that to happen. He's got to play more. I doubt it. I know. No, that's a shame. He's only got All to right. get a couple more to get ahead of A Rod, right? One more. Right. One more to tie. One more to one more to tie. Two to pass. Yeah. So there's a good one. We'll that. pull for. There's a good milestone for us to pull for. All right, guys. That has been the 2022 NFL Preview Show. Two hours of sports analytics here on Wharton Moneyball. We will do it again. We do it every week. For the whole crew, Shane Jensen making it on the show. Good job, Shane. Audie Weiner for the whole gig here. Eric Bradlow as well. This has been Cade Massey. Matty Datz, boss man. Many thanks. Dion Simpkins, associate boss man, sound engineer, sewing this thing together. Much appreciated. Thanks to all of you. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.